Good morning. It is great to be with you and great to hear great music, by the way. Thank you. I, I love it. Um, fellow musicians. Fellow musicians. But you're much better than me. So, so uh, I've been introduced already. My name is John Hubers. Um, Valerie, who I've known since 1972... And Ira, who I've known as since 1972, told me to say a little bit more about myself. My problem is I got such a long, complicated background that I would take the whole 25 minutes just to introduce myself. So let me just say that my background, the reason why I'm here, has been for much of my adult life has been in the area of Christian-Muslim relations. My wife and I first went out to the Middle East in 1976, right when we graduated from our school in Iowa. First time we set foot on an airplane was to fly from Sioux City, Iowa to Manama, Bahrain. And uh, we've kind of never looked back since then. Um, along the way, I got my PhD in, in um, the area of Christian Muslim relations. I taught for 10 years in this, this area in a religion department at Northwestern College, went back to my hometown. And for the past four years, have been working on a program in Christian Muslim relations at the Makana Jesus Seminary in Addis Ababa, and in December I'm retired. That's six weeks from now. I'm ready. <laughs> Ira's already there, so um, yeah. So Ira and Val, Valerie, I got to be careful. In in college, we used to call her Val, Valerie. Um, Ira and I were in a cappella choir, my wife as well, uh, a cappella choir together. Uh, we got to know each other, and I would just say, we didn't just meet at college. They were part of our circle of friends, and we've stayed in touch over the years. And we, we were really glad when we moved here to West, uh, to West Michigan from Iowa that one of the first people we got in touch with were Ira and Valerie. So it's great to be in touch again, and thank you for inviting me. So, this morning... I'd like to share <coughs> a program I usually take 45 minutes to cover in 25 minutes. So those of you of a certain age will know that I'm doing the Reader's Digest version of this presentation that I first did in the summer of 2000 or in the fall of 2001. You may remember what happened in 2001. In April of that year, I had just started as the supervisor of Reformed Church mission work in the Middle East and South Asia. And I'd been on the job then for several months, and boom, 9-11 happened. And since my area of um, area was the Middle East, this became front and center. Uh, my first thought was, the personnel that I'm in charge of in the Middle East, uh, are they safe? I had to think of that. Um, I was at a meeting in central Iowa, actually, doing fundraising, when I got up in the morning at the motel, it was on the screen, and I'll never forget that. I thought I was watching a bad movie, and it turned out to be a bad reality. Um, and it struck me, uh, by this time, we had, my wife and I had spent 13 years in the Middle East. Um, so we had learned about Islam. We had experienced Islam. We had developed relationships with the people in that part of the world that there's going to be people in our churches who are going to wonder, who are these people? Why are they doing this? So I put together a presentation 
And I'd let it be known in the Reformed Church that if you would like me to come and do a basic introduction to Islam to help answer that question, I'd be happy to do so. And I got a lot of invitations, particularly on the East Coast. Reformed Church has a lot of churches in the New York area, uh, churches that lost people in 9-11. And uh, I've been doing it kind of ever since. So this, this originated back in that original impulse to share um, about what had been a part of our experience. And I, I entitled it Our Muslim Neighbors because I want to put an emphasis on relationships. Our Muslim Neighbors. And they are no longer just people over there because they are literally our neighbors. Even in my little town in Iowa, there is now a Muslim family. That wasn't true when I was growing up. Wherever you are in the world, they are our neighbors. Um, introduction to the narrative, beliefs, and practices that shape their lives. And I think I have a button, a magic button here. And I hope it works. It does. So five times a day in Muslim-majority parts of the world, um, you will wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning and you'll hear this. God is greater. Allahu Akbar. God is greater. He repeats it. I testify that there is no God but God. Same phrase repeated. There is no God but God. Muhammad Rasul Allah. I testify that Muhammad is the apostle of God, not just the prophet, but the apostle, the sent one of God. And he repeats it again. Come, stop whatever you're doing and come to a time of ritual prayer. And now he repeats it. It's a very Semitic thing to do, by the way, to repeat. In the Bible, you'll see this, particularly in the, in the book of Psalms. <laughs> then finally, Haya al-Falah, come to the successful life. So by taking time out of your routine to go through this ritual of prayer, you will be led into that place where your life will be successful. So, ah, and then we have to end with the most important phrase, Allahu Akbar, God is greater. And by the way, it is a comparative, not a superlative. It's not God is the greatest. It's not God is great. It is God is greater. He is greater than anything you can imagine, greater than anything that exists in the universe. So five times a day, you will hear that, what we call the call to prayer. And the question is, who heeds that call? Now notice I don't say who hears the call. I can tell you if you are in the Muslim world, you will hear that call. We lived in Bahrain and in Oman, right next door to mosques. 
And this comes from that tall tower called the minaret. And they have, a, they have uh, it amplified there, and you will hear the call to prayer. However, the question, the more important question, is who heeds that call? Who hears that call as speaking directly to them? And the answer to that question is a whole lot of people. 1.6 billion. Now, these are, this is an estimate. The estimated number of Christians in the world are those who would, in one form or another, claim to fall under the category of Christian is 2.4 billion. Muslims are 1.6 billion, although the latest figures I've heard is it could be as high as 2 billion. So what we're looking at here, when we look at Christianity and we look at Islam, we look around the globe, these are by far the two largest communities uh, religious communities in the world. And just like Christianity, as you can imagine, oops, I just went backwards. Just like Christianity, as you can imagine, this is a global faith. 1.6 billion people. That's not just in one place in the world. That is around the globe, which means that this is a religion that represents many different cultures, European, American, Asian, African, um, literally every country in the world has a Muslim presence, including the United States. And by the way, it's not nearly as large as some people think it is. It's only less than 1% of the American population is Muslim, as opposed, for instance, to where I've been working the past four years in Ethiopia, where it's 40%. Um, which is why a, a program in Christian Muslim relations is absolutely essential to a theological education in a country like Ethiopia. Here, we can still ignore the fact that there are Muslims among us because they really are a small percentage. But many different cultures, and I need to add, many different lifestyles. In my years of experience uh, in the Middle East and now in Ethiopia, I have met Muslims who literally represent the full spectrum of human experience and perspectives. There are liberal Muslims. Um, there are secular Muslims. There are very conservative Muslims. There are fanatically conservative Muslims. And then there's the major bulk of Muslims, like the major bulk of Christians or Hindus or Buddhists or any other religious group. They're simply people, and someone said this in our, in our uh, 9 o'clock session, just trying to get along, for which their religion is a way of helping them deal with what it means to be human. The vast bulk of Muslims would fit that category. And if you f forget everything else I say this morning, remember this. This is an incredibly diverse community. Pet peeve. When I hear someone say, well, Muslims believe that, or Muslims are, and my first reaction is, whoa, which Muslims are we talking about here? Um, there are 1.6 billion Muslims. They all have their own opinions. They all have their own lifestyles. It really isn't even possible to say Muslims are or Muslims believe because there is a great variety. I think we understand this immediately when you say the word Christian. Um, a Pentecostal Christian is very different 
than a Catholic Christian. Um, I'm Reformed, but in the past there's been real differences between all these different denominations. Um, there, if you're uh, a Christian in Manhattan, you're different than a Christian in Orange City, Iowa. Your culture determines the shape of your faith. Islam is exactly the same way. There's great diversity. Yet, we can still say that there is one community of faith. Um, how can we say that? Because there are basic beliefs that link them together, basic experiences that link them together. Um, so how can we say that Islam is one community of faith? Well, we start with their basic confession of faith, la ilaha illallah, wa Muhammad Rasul Allah. There is no God but God, one God. This is an absolute monotheism, one God. That's the core of Islam, the belief in one God. And Muhammad being the one who has brought the final expression of God's purpose to the earth. Uh, when I have conversations with my Muslim friends, I say we're on the same boat, when it, or the same page when he say there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. But the part about Muhammad, we begin to have different perspectives. Because what this is saying is that it is Muhammad who has brought the final message to the world. So, who is Muhammad? Um, the first thing we need to know is Muhammad was born into this, uh, in the 6th century, the latter part of the 6th century, into this reality represented by this map. You had the Byzantine Empire off to the west. You had the Persian Empire, which was uh, Zoroastrian, off to the east. And then you've got the Arabian Peninsula, which was divided into many different tribal groups. And then at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula, what is now the country of Yemen, you have a very interesting civilization that was Christian and Jewish over the years, went back and forth during the years. Muhammad was born in Arabia. Most of the people in Arabia where Muhammad was born worshipped many gods. They were basically animists. Um, the reason why they weren't Christian or Zoroastrian is because what is there in Saudi Arabia? Desert. There's nothing. Nobody cared. So they lived their own nomadic lifestyle, except in the major cities of Mecca and Medina, which were trading cities. So here's a very, very quick overview of Muhammad's life. Born around 570 A.D., um, became an orphan by the age of six when his mother died, raised first by his grandfather who died two years later, then raised by a beloved uncle, Abu Talib, from the age of eight. We don't know much about his early life. All, we do know that at the age of 25, he was uh, married to his boss. He had been engaging in trading missions between Syria and Mecca, camel trains, and she was a very wealthy businesswoman she owned her own caravan trade. Um, she was 40 years old. He was 25, which is, doesn't happen in the Arab world anymore. So this was a true love story. He fell in love with his boss. And he married Khadija. And as long as Khadija was alive, um, he outlived her. He was faithful and to that one marriage. After she died, he married 12 other women. That's another story. Um, 
So trading to missions, we do know that he did that, uh, age of 25, age of 40, proving that life begins at 40. Um, he was making visits up to the mountains outside Mecca because he's deeply disturbed with the divisions that existed within tribal society in Arabia. He also had some contact with Jews and Christians, and, and they were talking about one God, and he, he said, what is this? Or maybe this is, this is a reality, maybe a reality that can, that, that can uh, unite these disparate tribes. He was making these visits to the, to the caves in the mountains outside of Mecca, and one night, Muslims believe, the angel Gabriel, the same Gabriel in the Bible, came to him and said, recite in the name of God, recite. In other words, bring the message of God, take the message of God. At first, he didn't know what to make of this. He was frightened. His wife, Khadija, when he told her the story, said, oh, that might have been an angel that visited you. Um, there were possibly Christians in his tribal group um, that also affirmed it. And in, very shortly, he became convinced that the one God was calling him to bring the message of one God only to the idol-worshiping neighbors of him. And so this became his life mission, to call people to the worship of one God. And he did that. Um, and it brought persecution. And it also brought this revelation. And Muslims believe, over 23 years, off and on, Muhammad would receive directly from God through the angel Gabriel these visions, these revelations, and they believed that Muhammad was illiterate, so he couldn't have written them down. So he would recite them to his, his family and friends, and they would write it down. After he died, all of those revelations he received were collected together, put under cover, and that became the Islamic holy book known as the Quran. What's What's uh, important to note here is that they believe that the words that he received are not his words. It is not correct to say that Muhammad wrote the Quran. Muhammad received the Quran. He was like a secretary taking dictation. He received it, which means that that book, when, when uh, traditional Muslims read the Quran, they believe they're, li they're literally reading the words of God the actual words of God, which is also why you should read the, uh, the Quran in Arabic because that's the language of the Quran. I've had Muslims actually tell me that I needed to learn Arabic or when I get to heaven, I won't understand anything because the language of heaven is Arabic. Now, I grew up in a Dutch community in northwest Iowa. I was told it was Dutch. <laughs> I guess it's Arabic. Anyway, so now I'm going to encapsulate a lot of history here. So he became a persecuted prophet because Mecca was the center of idol worship and there was a, uh, a square cube in the center of Mecca and inside were idols called the Kaaba and there was big money to be made because all of the tribes would come in and spend a lot of money in Mecca and the people that were in charge of that trade realized if this message caught on that there was only one God, they were out of business. And they began to oppose Muhammad, and it became very intense. And the members who, of his group who represented a weak clan tie, their lives were threatened. He sent the, the, a group to Ethiopia, the Christian nation of Ethiopia, 
and the king received them and gave them shelter, which is why Ethiopia has a special place in Islamic history and in Islamic hearts. Anyway, Muhammad himself, when his uncle died, he lost clan protection. His life was threatened. He made his way to the nearby city of Medina. You'll see where Medina is, north of Mecca. And they invited him to, in a sense, become the mayor of Medina. They were having a lot of problems. And those problems included three Jewish tribes in Medina. And he became the head of and began to shape the life in Medina uh, according to the revelation he had received. And this is when Islam really became a religion that brought together a religion and state. Because Muhammad started as a prophet calling people to worship the one God. Now he was the head of a community that was worshiping the one God and living according to the, the, the continuing revelation that Muhammad received. Um, this is a very important time in Islamic history. It's called the Hijrah. They actually have their own calendar. There's an Islamic calendar. You'll sometimes see it. I think they're in about 1400 something. A-H, after Hijrah. So why, why not tie, tie it to Muhammad's birth? We tie the Western calendar to Jesus' birth because the most important event in the life of that early community is when Muhammad shifted from being a persecuted prophet to being the head of a community which was being shaped by his vision. So Hijrah, very important to Muslims. It's when there was a fusion between the religious message and the political message. Um, over the next few years, skirmishes between those, the powerful group um, in Mecca, which was opposing Muhammad, and Muhammad's growing band as more and more came over to his side, particularly when he was in Medina, and we had battles that go back and forth. And in the Quran, you'll read it about three battles, and it sounds very similar to things you read in the Old Testament, <coughs> where God is fighting on the side of his growing community. And um, they lose some battles, they win some battles, but the end of that story is Muhammad finally returns to Mecca with a force of 10,000 and is outside the gates of Mecca and the Meccans, the very, the Quraysh tribe, which was opposing him, welcomed him and his group in and literally gave him the key to the city, which means they surrendered. Muhammad, who could have at that point sought revenge, did just the opposite. He pardoned everyone. But the first thing they did is they went into the Kaaba and they stripped out of the Kaaba all the idols and smashed them so that the Kaaba became what Muslims today believe it to be, the original place where Abraham was going to sacrifice his son. And in the Arab story, it's Ishmael, not Isaac. And recovered the Kaaba for its original purpose as a house of God. And that is now the focal point of Islamic devotion is the Kaaba. There's an interesting story that's come out of the early biography of Muhammad that the other thing that was in the Kaaba was a picture of the Virgin Mary and Jesus. 
And Jesus is an important prophet in Islam. The story of Jesus is in the Quran, like Abraham and Moses and many of the prophets of the Bible. But Jesus is an especially revered prophet in Islam. Uh, Muslims believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. There's a possible story. I think there's some truth, got to be some truth here, of a picture of Virgin Mary and Jesus, the only thing they did not destroy in the Kaaba. We don't know if it's there anymore because nobody's allowed to go inside the Kaaba. Um, and by the way, if you want to know what the Kaaba is, there is, at the center of the Kaaba, there's a, a stone. It's a meteorite, actually. Almost certainly, thousands and thousands of years ago, a meteorite came, and, the, and the, the tribal Arabs began to see this as a sign from God. What happened with Muhammad is he changed the, the, the whole rhythm of the pilgrimage that, that the idol-worshipping Arabs were doing into a worship of the one God. So almost all the same things the idol-worshippers were doing when they came for their pilgrimage, he reinterpreted to make it monotheistic. And if that sounds strange, um, we put Christmas trees in our, in our houses that is taking a pagan practice and re-Christianizing it so that the memory of its uh, pagan roots is almost completely gone. Same thing happened here. This was a brilliant move because the rhythm of the lives of the tribal Arabs was to come on that pilgrimage. To Islamicize it was an actually brilliant move because it, it caught on. Nobody even remembers those pagan roots anymore. Um, so... The persecuted prophet in Mecca now becomes the leader of a movement that very soon took over all of the Arabian tribes. It did what Muhammad hoped. It united those tribes under a single creed. Um, so Muhammad went to Mecca triumphant, and then he retired, did what I'm going to do in December. He retired to Medina, which is, was his city. And there he lived until he died at age 62 in the arms of his favorite wife, Aisha. And you can visit his tomb. No, you can't. You have to convert to Islam. But his tomb is in Medina, in this huge mosque. The reason why I said you can't visit is because these two holy sites of Medina and Mecca, only Muslims are allowed to visit. You cannot visit either of those two cities unless you become Muslim or you can prove that you have become Muslim. Um, there have been Christians in the past who have visited, but they've pretended to be Muslim in order to get in. So amazing stories, particularly in this global, global world we live in, these, these two cities that remain off limits to anyone except uh, Muslims. So what came out of this? Now this is very brief, way too brief. But what came out of it, out of the revelations that Muhammad received, was what I would call a framework for a faith community, a framework that is built on ritual, um, built on changing the rhythm of people's lives so that they have constant reminders that their lives belong to the one God and that they owe their lives to that one God. And these are strictly ritual practices that are done by all Muslims everywhere 
in the world. And again, brilliant when you think of it, because it really has a uniting effect. It starts with the testimony, La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasul Allah. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is God's apostle. Five times a day prayer called Salah. But I challenge that translation prayer. It's not prayer, because we think of prayer of talking to God. This is not Muslims speaking out of their hearts, talking to God. This is Muslims following very strictly a ritual that starts with a cleansing ritual that has everyone facing Mecca, wherever you are in the world, that um, goes through a series of motions with their body, standing up, kneeling, putting their head on the ground, and reciting words taken directly from the Quran. There's no dear God here. This is a ritual of worship, really, to remind them that they belong to God. So five times a day prayer uh, dictated by the Quran. The Ramadan fast, Ramadan is a month on the Islamic calendar, and during that month, a strict fast, very strict from sunup to sundown, no food, and very devout Muslims, no drinks. Now, if you live in Saudi Arabia, and they have a lunar calendar that moves. August, Saudi Arabia, it's 120 degrees. No food, no drink from sunup till sundown. So basically, life stops. We lived in that part of the world. And Ramadan, most Western businessmen, they leave during the month of Ramadan. They go on vacation because nothing gets done. People come into their offices, they drag in, they fall asleep at their desks. And then they go home. Because when the sun sets, you can eat all you want. More food is consumed in the Muslim world during the month of Ramadan than any other month of the year. <laughs> they will have three full meals between sundown and sunup. We loved, back in the 70s, when we were in Bahrain learning about this, we loved Ramadan because when, when the sun went down, the stores were all open, the restaurants were all open. It was party time. Um, and some of the best meals we've ever eaten have been iftar meals, which is a breaking of the fast meals. So, but what a discipline. And the whole community is doing it together. Notice, whole community doing it together. That's what this is about. Um, the pilgrimage to Mecca. Every Muslim is required to make at least once in their lives the pilgrimage to Mecca, um, following the procedure that was set in the 7th century. And then... A percentage of your income should be given to help particularly the poor, called zakat, or almsgiving. All of those are dictated by the Quran, and I like to think of them as the, the structure within which Islam is practiced. Rituals, and just imagine that when you're doing those prayers, when you're giving your alms, when you're making the trip to Mecca, you know you're a part of a 1.6 billion member community very strong sense of community behind these rituals. Um, just for time's sake, I'm going to skip jihad, but maybe we can talk about it when we come back. It's really not a pillar, but it is an essential part of Islam. And that requires a long talk. Other things that came out of the revelation that was received by Muhammad, um, Tawheed is absolutely central to Islam. The basic belief system of Islam is there is one God, one God only, and we must obey that one God. No compromise on that. That is the essential teaching of Islam. Um, they believe in angels. 
uh, found through other Quran, especially Gabriel, um, but also other beings, including the jinn. And we know the story of the jinn. If you've seen Aladdin, right? The big blue, that's a genie. That's a, a derivation from the Arabic word jinn. The jinn are mischievous spirits. They're not evil. They're mischievous. And if we have time in the hour that's following this, I'll tell you about my experience with jinn in the country of Oman. Um, but the idea of prophethood is very important. The belief that God has sent to all people groups on earth at different times of history, people who go to as warners, as prophets. And here's what lies behind that. Muslims believe that human beings are not sinful. We all have the potential for good, but we easily forget and are easily led astray. And Satan is one of those creatures that's out there tempting people. We are weak. So what do we need? We need constant reminders. Forgetfulness is a big part of the teaching of Islam. We need constant reminders of what we need to do to live that successful life. <clears throat> so God has sent these prophets to every group on earth. And that's why many of the prophets of the Old Testament are found in the Quran, as well as John the Baptist is found in the Quran, and of course, Jesus. Um, some of those messengers had books. The ones that are named in the Quran is the, um, the El Torah, which is the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Zabur, which is the Psalms, and Injil, which is the Gospel, but it's not the Gospels we have. In fact, it's really confusing to Muslims that we have four Gospels. There's only one gospel. It's a book that was given to Jesus to pass on. What happened to it? Well, here's the, here's the story, the traditional story. Both Jews and Christians received the revelation from God, and they twisted it. And what we have in the Bible is not the truth. It's a twisted version of the truth. The Quran needed to come along to correct the mistakes of Jews and Christians which means that if you quote the Bible to a Muslim, they say, well, that's your twisted version of the truth. Now, if it conforms to the Quran, and much in the Bible conforms to the Quran, they will affirm it. But at those points, particularly when the Bible seems to suggest the incarnation, that Jesus is the Son of God, absolute rejection of that in the Quran. Um, and a very strong belief that w world history is going to come to an end. And it's exactly like uh, pictured in the biblical account, the apocalyptic version of the biblical account. All things will be made new. Strong belief in the resurrection of the dead. Strong belief in an afterlife, which is very vivid in the Quran and the tradition of Islam as a garden. And as desert people, there's nothing that you would yearn more for than a beautiful garden. So just, I'm going to end here by saying, okay, that's kind of the core message of Islam. There's so much more here, but we don't have time, that energize these tribal peoples, believing that this is a message the whole world needs to have. And they went out from Arabia and 
The orange part in the middle here is what became Islamic um, at the time of Muhammad, and then it spread from there by 750 North Africa into Spain. Um, all of Persia was, was under Islam. And I, whenever I see an AV guy coming to the front, I know it's almost time to end. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just going to end here. Important points to keep in mind. Islam means submission, I forgot to mention that, to the will of the one God, discoverable through the Quran, the Sunnah, the lifestyle and teaching of Muhammad, which is collected in uh, books known as the Hadith, and the consensus of the learned community. Second, a Muslim is a person who practices Islam. I sometimes hear people saying Islamics as though that's a description of the people. No, there's a specific Arabic word to describe a person who practices Islam. It's Muslim. And uh, again, maybe I'll give you a little Arabic instruction for those who stay afterward. We can talk about that. Um, Orthodox Muslim believe, notice I'm not saying that Muslims believe that. Orthodox Muslim belief says that Muhammad is the last and greatest of a long series of messengers sent by God. He is not divine in any sense. They reject that. Orthodox teaching asserts that the Quran contains the literal words of God passed on through the ga angel Gabriel. Um, and all Muslim life should be under the teaching of the Quran and the traditions because the ideal and the utopian society for Muslims is a theocracy. Um, problematic in today's world. Muslims understand that, particularly Muslims in America and Europe. And interestingly, they are going through a bit of a revolution in trying to redefine Islam within a, a, a pluralistic environment. And there's some very interesting writing going on among Muslims here in the United States and in Europe to redefining that away from that earlier theocracy. They're doing the same thing we've had to do as well. And uh, sharing much with Christians, there are key differences, particularly related to the person of Jesus. And you can't see it at the bottom because it's cut off, which is too bad, it's the most important thing. This is an incredibly diverse community. The best way to get to know Muslims is to meet them and greet them. And I can tell you, especially the immigrants who are Muslim, are coming from cultures that are very hospitable. The, the thing that we miss in the Middle East, incredible hospitality. Um, and they sometimes use the term the Cold West to define Europe, the United States, because they don't experience that hospitality here. I can tell you it's not hard to meet Muslims. And when, when you open your door and you open your heart to them, very easy people to get to know. And I just encourage you, I don't know how many Muslims there are in Grand Haven. There are two, there are three mosques in, in Grand Rapids. I've been to one of them. We have an Afghani family, refugee family in Holland that I've been relating to. I take them to the mosque and it's packed on Friday, which is the day at worship. So I know there's a large Muslim community in Grand Rapids, particularly in Kentwood, which is where the mosques are. Um, maybe some of you work with Muslims. Maybe some of you have Muslims as your next door neighbors. Get to know them. Um, it's always great to have your world expanded by connecting with people who are different from you, which is why I appreciate your 
message. Amen. Can I say amen? Can we say amen here? Okay. So, I think we're done. Thank you.